We are now about to hear the fifth in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of Eamon Kant to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 087 69 44 500. At this time, there are many treatments of the theme of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices. Hello, welcome to Lost Easter Voices. I'm Charlotte Tannen. Well, we are here to listen to the next of these amazing recordings of the 1916 leaders. These recordings have been brought back to Ireland after a hundred years. Previously, we listened to the voices of Pierce, McDonough, Clark and Joseph Plunkett. We now listen to the voice of Eamon Kant. Right, Mr Kant. Uh, can you sit on the chair? I've The machine switched on to capture your words. What? Sit to the table as we discussed, please. This is an intrusion. I've less than an hour of life. A short time to gather me thoughts. Why not share your thoughts with the Irish people? My thoughts are private and of no importance to others. You held senior positions in the IRB and the volunteers. You were central to the planning for the Rising. You signed the proclamation. I'm sure people would like to hear your thoughts on the event. You should share them. How many of the others let you record them? I'm sure Tom Clark ran you. Mr. Clark was generous with his time. I have his last words and he was happy to have them preserved. (laughs) I doubt that. Tom was the most secretive of the lot. Yes, secretive in planning the rising, but content to have those plans preserved for future generations. You should also advise future activists. You will have aspects unknown, even to Clark. This information needs to be preserved. You can tell your story in your own voice. Please. Here you say, I should sit here. Yes, please. Uh, just lean in towards the device. Thank you. What do you want from me now? Let me... let me set the scene. It is the early morning of the 8th of May, and I'm in the cell of Mr. Eamon Kant. We'll start with where you were born, the date, a bit about your family, that sort of thing. I, I'd rather not discuss that. Oh, please. There, there can't be any harm in telling us a little about your birth and early years, can there? Uh, you think not? What would you say if I revealed that I'm a son of an RIC officer, born in the police barracks in Ballymore? I see. Well, your birth is your birth. None of us have a say in that, you know. We moved to Dublin when I was about 12. Is that enough for you? Yes, that's grand, thank you. What about education and how you came to be a nationalist? You don't have to rush these topics. I want you to be comfortable, you know. I, 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 I want this over speedily. I'm only doing it because Tom did it. I trust his instincts. Well, Tom relaxed and let the information flow naturally. Why don't you try to do the same? I'll not stay a moment longer than necessary. I can sense, Mr. Kant, that you are not warming to me. Ah, uh, look, look, it's not you. Uh, I've always presented a, a cold exterior to the world. It is but a mask. Perhaps it's time to shed it now, eh? Thank you. That would be useful. Can you outline where you were educated, please? I was educated in the Christian Brothers School in North Richmond Street. There, I got a love of the Irish language and history. In 1900, I joined the Gaelic League. I was elected to the governing body and became a teacher of Irish. That's grand. Now, about family. Uh, I met my wife, Anya, while while teaching an Irish uh, class. She was a student. Our wedding was conducted in Irish and we used French coins for the silver, (laughs) rather than the English ones. 
That wasn't quite... I was thinking about your own family. Uh, then you should be more precise. My own family were a particularly musical family. I myself mastered the fiddle and whistle. Why, I even... Wait, wait. We need to keep this in order if I'm to capture the pertinent facts of the rising. Uh, very well. What do you want to know? I think we understand your background now. When did you become involved in the plans for the rising? I was always a physical force man. I believed in the logic of the pike. I had little time for home rule debate. I remember advising a meeting that force is winning the political battle in Ulster. It's up to the nationalists of Ireland to adopt similar means. It is the duty of all men to be skilled in the use of arms. Go on. Carson was acting while Redmond was dithering. Even if successful, we'd become a shire where English law is a formula for converting Irish patriots into English felons. There was no middle ground in your opinion? None. I met Sean McDermott around then, at an anti-imperialist demonstration in Dublin. We recognised each other for what we were. Sean swore me into the IRB shortly thereafter. He also encouraged me to join the newly formed Irish Volunteers to advance the IRB agenda. I found in the Volunteers my natural home. I rose rapidly to finally becoming the Director of Communications in Headquarters Staff. Impressive. Where were you living now as a married man? In, in Dolphins Barn. I was recruiting most of DA companies from that district. You were definitely ready for a fight and you could see no merit in the home rule debate. I understand that it was to deliver a significant freedom. Are you deliberately annoying? I'm only asking. Home rule would have ensured an endless stream of young Irish men to fight and die in Britain's imperial wars. Our responsibility was to Ireland. I worked hard to dissuade Irish men from enlisting in the English forces. Many of whom had been persuaded by Redmond in so doing. They were helping Ireland's freedom. That was the case made, but you didn't believe it. Uh, well, after uh, Redmond's wooden bridge speech, I said openly that the time has come to declare definitely one way or the other, are you for England or are you for Ireland? With McDermott and Clark, I was heavily involved in planning the rising. I worked with them in establishing the IRB Military Council. Another inner circle. A necessary small, tight-knit unit, yes. Even I was not privy to everything. What? There was an even more secretive circle. No, no, no. Just uh, different elements worked separately and conferring as necessary. Uh, how were you excluded? Well, there was the incident with James Connolly. I suppose I should record my disappointment at being excluded from that. Connolly again? What happened? I was on the military council. Uh, it often met in my house. Yet the council were involved in the disappearance of Connolly. It nearly caused the citizen army action, and it was only avoided by the reappearance of Connolly. Then I was told about the event. What citizen army action? Well, uh, now, apparently, uh, Connolly had instructed his army that should he ever go missing for three days, they were to launch an attack in Dublin Castle. This would, of course, have undermined our own careful plans. I became aware of the situation. I alerted my own company, saying that if the citizens' army rose, we must come out with them. Luckily, Connolly surfaced around then, and we began to hear about the negotiations between Pierce and Connolly. But the intense secrecy nearly had A Company and the citizen army moving prematurely against the castle. How did you feel about that? Uh, 
Once I was apprised of the situation, I was fine with it. I understood that Connolly was alone. We couldn't have the entire IRB military council talking at him. Still, it would have been better if I was informed, yes. So, you were back in the swim of things, eh? Yes. Around then, we began drafting the proclamation. I was to be one of the signatories, as was Connolly now. I was pleased to be allocated Minister for War. De Valera had been offered it, but declined, announcing that he wouldn't be around as he intended going down in the fight. I noticed, sir, that we have used up almost two-thirds of the recording space while we sorted out our differences. Try to give a brief description of your seizure of... of, uh, of the South Dublin Union, for a start. Very well. First off, I must point out that I had, an, had a contingent of less than 60 men. And this was due to the treachery of McNeil. I would have shot him if I had that heart. Some 60 men seizing this union. How did you do it? We had our weapons stored in the grocery shop facing the main gate of the union. We recovered these and just went in. Describe this union. Is it a big place? Uh, this was the point of my referencing less than 60 men, you see. The union is a vast, sprawling space. It's a town covering over 50 acres. The original plan had us holding the entire complex. But we had to choose. We were in a militarily strategic position. We knew we'd provoke a military response. Now, how did you do? Heroically. We came under assault almost immediately. British forces entered the grounds in several places. We fought to hold the open spaces in the buildings. It was often hand-to-hand combat. Our scattered forces coming face-to-face with the nervous Brits in a long intersecting corridors. Empty wards and gaps between buildings. You mentioned wards. What, what was this union? Uh, well, the union was built as a workhouse in the middle of the 19th century. Now it houses about, um, about 3,000 poor and elderly, as well as doctors and nurses. So what did you do with them, the inmates? Uh, we confined them to one secure quarter, uh, and the staff wore red crosses, and they moved about. Although several nurses were killed in crossfire, uh, both we and the British had dead bodies scattered around the complex. Uh, I offered a truce to allow the dead and wounded to be collected. The reply was, we'll give you no truce. You've killed our major. So the fighting continued? Yes, with, with growing intensity. The British were increasingly frustrated that they had to come fight for every yard. We were eventually forced back into the night nurse's home on Thursday. We estimated there were some 600 British troops surrounding us. We resisted and refused to surrender. On Friday, they withdrew and did not return. You had beaten them? We had resisted them. But, but something was changing. We received word that things were not going well elsewhere. The provinces were quiet. In the capital, the, the military seemed determined to level the city. Nevertheless, with our experience here in the Union, we know that determined Irishmen could withstand British assault, even if outnumbered ten to one. We had fought so successfully that it came as a complete surprise when McDonough arrived on Sunday afternoon to tell us of Pierce's surrender order. And what happened? We, we reluctantly surrendered. They threatened to shell the entire place, with large numbers of elderly poor sheltering. I ordered the removal of the barricades at the front gate. You were overwhelmed? No. Just a priest and a British officer entered. The priest went to my man, and the officer held out his hand to shake mine. 
<laughs> I didn't shake his hand. He said, You have a fine position here. I replied, We made full use of it. And we held your army for six days. He was amazed to hear that we now numbered only 45. He said if he'd known how few there were of you, none of you would have been left alive. And then what happened? We were disarmed and marched to Richmond Barracks. Uh, on the way we passed the place where poor Emmett was hanged for Ireland. We knew as we passed that we wouldn't be asked to lay down our lives. Splendid. I mean, splendid that you told it so clearly. What else do you want to hear? To the trial. Uh, what can you tell me about that? I prepared a defence. I felt I would die, but I preferred not to. My wife and son had already sacrificed a lot for Ireland. Perhaps enough. I felt the prosecution case was weak. I decided that I would not deny anything proven, or admit anything that wasn't proven. I challenged the false evidence that I was in the Jacobs factory, and asked that Thomas McDonough be brought as a witness to refute this, only to be told he was no longer available. They had shot my main witness that morning. But they gave you a fair hearing. It was all very hurried. Have you seen your family and a priest? Yes. My brother and my wife are here, and uh, Father Augustine had promised me that he'll anoint my body after. Uh, after, you know. Yes, I know. I rushed you earlier, so that we still have a few minutes left. Anything else you would like to record? All right. <coughs> I hold no ill will towards those against whom I have fought. I, I have found the soldiers and higher officers human and companionable. Even the English were in the fight against us. For the guidance of other revolutionaries who might tread the path that I have trod, this advice. Never to treat with the enemy. Never to surrender at his mercy, but to fight to the finish. I see nothing gained but grave disaster caused by the surrender at his mercy, which has marked the end of the Irish insurrection in 1916. The enemy has not cherished one generous thought for those who withstood his forces for one glorious week. Next time, comrades, if they drive you out of the building, fight them in the streets. Remember, these are your streets. And finally, we have an Ireland
I'm Charlotte Hannan. We have in studio to discuss this recording historian Wilmot Hines. Hello again. Who will assist us in the understand the event. We have panellists Roger Brazenby and Hugh Coy. Hi. And we normally do have Signora Maxwell Hogan, who owns these original recordings, but she's not here yet. Uh, Sorry, wait a minute. I'm just getting something news in my ear. We've just learned that she's missing. When the near person... When the near person went to collect her from a hotel as usual, she was not in her room. What? I'm told that she and her luggage are missing. What of the cylinders? Good point. Can anyone shed any light on the cylinders, please? No. Uh, well, in the meantime, I suppose we should continue with our mm. discussion. Um, so, back to that. So, panel, what did you make of the Cant where, interview? Where could she have gone? Like, what did the hotel say? Did, did she check out? I don't know. I'll try and find out. Can anyone say if she checked out of the hotel? What? No. No, no, she didn't check out. She just left without settling up. The hotel expect us to pay as we booked her in. (laughs) Okay, Mm. right. Well, I don't know what to say now. Um, I I just, I do hope she's all right. She was due to return to Spain on Tuesday, and uh, I'm afraid now I don't exactly know what's going on. Sounds suspicious. I think you should call the guard. Hold on. What? No, that's okay. They say they're doing that now. They're going to call the Gardaí. Those okay. precious cylinders gone as well. Oh, I'm sure she'll turn up okay. It's just a misunderstanding. Mm. She's probably on her way to the studio right now. But she always waits for us to call to the hotel to collect her. And why would she bring the cylinders with her? You know, this isn't making sense. I anyway. hope the cylinders are okay. They are priceless. Oh, Do you think that somebody could have kidnapped her? I mean, and robbed the cylinders? Come on, Ooh. now, let's not get hurried away. Here, get carried away. In the meantime, we must remember that we are on air. Mm, yeah. So, listen, sorry about it, listeners. Can we settle <clears> down and deal with the Kant interview? And, most likely, by the time we finish, we'll have good news about the situation. Okay, so, does anyone want to start? What did you learn about the new Eamon Kant? Interesting that he was the son of an RIC man. <laughs> that must have caused him some soul-searching. Notice uh, that he also joined the Gaelic League. That seems to have been the catalyst for many of the revolutionaries. Mm. Yeah, uh, we have a text in from Maura in Darndale asking, how could our current sense of Irishness really have been missing in 1900? Anyone want to take that? Uh, yes, uh, yes, yeah? an important point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should realise that in the Ireland that existed in 1900, it, there was very little trace of the Irishness we take for granted today. Ireland after the famine was almost erased as a concept. What do you mean erased? Well, you see, yes, people in ancient Ireland always had an idea of who they were and where they lived. Mm-hmm. Each locality was linked to a, a history. They had an entire ecology of mind. And what happened because of the famine? Well, a once troublesome colony became very obedient. A bewildered grief settled on the island. The Irish became more malleable. Uh, No words in either Irish or English could speak the horror of the famine. The British did not want to speak of it. The crushed Irish coped by discussing every other matter. (laughs) I imagine there was a raging silence behind the idle chatter. It was easy to impose Britishness on those broken spirits Hugh. while everyone ignored the ongoing cultural eradication. Please, Hugh, would you take it easy? No, no, he's, he, he's largely right. 
Uh, Ireland had to be recreated. Around then, many Irish revolutionaries were stung by the Italian political theorist Massini, who declared that Ireland was not an authentic nation. How could he say that? The British had succeeded in so demeaning all things legitimately Irish that when Massini looked at us, he could see no evidence of nationhood. He said we had no discernible language, no literature, no dance or games of our own, no national pride, not even a uniquely Irish consciousness. All of this was probably true of the happy English children in the decades after the famine. The Irish were robbed of everything. Robbed of their language, robbed of their land and worse, robbed of hope. Some, like Thomas Davis, were provoked by Massini to begin the search for these lost national uh, definers, uh, to be joined by Hyde, Yeats and Cusick uh, a little later on. Yes, from Hyde, Cusick and Yeats, we began to remake ourselves Irish. We began to discard the imposed stereotypes. Would you say it was Ireland imagining itself into being? Yes. Yes, yes. The task Mm -hmm. was to recreate the lost spirit of being Irish. All else would follow. Uh, Yeats wasn't entirely prescriptive. Cultural Ireland would redefine itself. Agreed. Historic Ireland was almost lost. An indifferent populace barely noticed the activities of the eccentric few. To attempt what they did required intense courage or serious insanity. A people who looked to London as the established centre of approved cultural patrons <coughs> were being asked to look to less tangible sites, to look to their discredited Gaelic, Gaelic language, to a, a new theatre, to a discarded sport for an alternative cultural significance. Indeed, I'm sure many couldn't do it. Well, many were hostile to this vulgar intrusion of a made-up provincial, provincialism, challenging the accepted global cosmopolitanism. A retreat from empire was not easy. They hadn't yet considered how they were treated by empire that would come. You know, I, I had no idea about this. It, it seems that those of us today with a strong sense of Irishness, with, with a pride in, in things Irish, we've no idea how extinguished such a sensibility was in the 1900s. Ireland was firmly of the empire. Its sons and daughters in each generation helped us to, to expand and consolidate the empire. Well, that was the challenge. The 1916 rebels set about creating an Irish identity, and this couldn't be achieved with cake sales or polite Mm. conversation. It took the GPO on fire to create this new space for reflection. I think the idea of Ireland free gained ground after that. Yes, yes. Shona Casey put it well in 1917, when he addressed the British administration. You cannot put a rope around the neck of an idea. You cannot put an idea up against a barrack wall and riddled with bullets. You cannot contain it in the strongest prison cell that your slaves could ever build. This radical idea was gaining ground, but I think the spirit of the rising had no suitable language to express itself. <laughs> Connolly had no such difficulty as he was describing the aftermath in more palpable terms. For Connolly, the ideological limitations were all too obvious. Socialism did not suit a largely rural Ireland, nor the Irish working class, who were not yet republicans, much less socialists. 
He was forced to devise elaborate social and economic models. Yes, he kept pushing the others to look beyond the horizon to what would be created. Unfortunately, their abstract approach led to the description eventually being written by the grocer, the baker and the candlestick maker. Connolly and Labour were swept aside probably with the belt of a crozier for good measure. Okay, panel, I sense this could go on all day and I must pull us back now to Eamon Kant. Wilmot, can you talk about the action at their location? Kant and his men in the South Dublin Union had it rough. Unlike Jacobs, the British wanted to retake this complex. The fighting was fierce, I believe. Um, Can you tell us anything about the South Dublin Union? I think it has disappeared from the Dublin scene. Uh, The South Dublin Union, like many of the battlefields of the 1916 Mm -hmm. Easter Rising, are not easily found. It it no longer exists by that name. It it was located at the present site of St James's Hospital on James's Street. So that's where it is. I always wondered. It was um, originally a house of industry for the removal from the streets of objectionable objects such as the destitute, vagabonds and insane. The food provided was soup rendered from leftovers collected in a wheelbarrow from the wealthy. Dear, it sounds like a fun place. Just as well it's gone. Kant, with his small force, tried to hold this vast complex from overwhelming forces. It was one of the most intense battles of the Rising. The Royal Irish Regiment uh, managed to take many of the buildings after fierce fighting. However, they were ordered to withdraw and return to barracks. They objected, uh, but redrew as surrender procedures were uh, completed elsewhere. And indeed, the British troops were amazed at how few volunteers there were. They would have overrun the place if they'd known. And I think that was the case in all locations. Mm. Um, Tenacity, I think, is the word. That's an interesting point. Uh, People have often suggested that the volunteers who fought had been tricked by the leaders into turning out. Men and women who felt themselves duped wouldn't have shown such bravery. The majority of volunteers in action probably felt it was a hopeless enterprise. Eyewitness accounts, however, are clear that the men and women of the Republican garrisons were ready to die for Irish freedom. Kant seemed to resent the surrender. He said as much as advice to future generations. Yes, didn't he say something like, um, the enemy has not cherished one generous thought for those who withstood his forces for one glorious week? Mm. We have a text in from uh, Mark in Clonshock asking if we could explore further how the Irish identity was saved and advanced. Anyone like to take that, Hugh? Well, it is worth noting that most of this shaping of a new national sentiment was being directed by a group of Protestants. Mm, Including Redmond. Redmond was playing to the new middle class, mostly now Catholic. It needs to be acknowledged also that this Catholic middle class began to describe independence as a Catholic-nationalist event when it was largely the Irish Protestant imagination that had saved the soul of Ireland, saved it from extinction and Uh, worked to revive it. Why are you introducing religious matters in this contentious way? I'm reminding us of the part played by other religions in Ireland's struggle. And what do you mean by that? In 1798, Wolftone successfully mustered radical Presbyterians, aggrieved Catholics and secular Republicans into a fighting force. In fact, 1916 came too late. 
If a successful revolution had happened with tone, we'd have had Catholics, Protestants and dissenters involved and supportive. Uh, Hugh is right. And after Toned, Protestant Ireland continued to produce the intellectual vigour to sustain a separatist idea. The young Irelander, Thomas Davis, produced the important nationalist newspaper, The Nation, uh, with the help of Catholic friends. Exactly. The most potent moments occur when religions combine to fight exploitation. Connolly knew this. Whereas O'Connell's nationalism was increasingly equated with Catholic sectarianism. That hasn't helped to raise a new consciousness. Sure, with tone in mind, declared that a true Protestant was ipso facto an Irish Republican. And Redmond, in his own way, understood such Republican values. Redmond wouldn't know a Republic if it bit him on the ass. Oh, oh, dear. Hugh, please, uh, Hugh, I have asked you to leave that arse outside the studio. Please. Leave me ass outside. Now, Hugh, uh, you know what I mean. Please, let's be civil. Be wary of our listeners, OK? Text in from Bernie in Clare Hall who asks, has the panel a view on whose republic materialised? Interesting. That of Connolly or McDermott. Clearly the Republic of McDermott emerged while that of Connolly disappeared. I don't don't think it's as clear cut as that. Absolutely is. Many who fought during the period thought so. For instance, the writer Francis Stewart, who was active, wrote that... We fought to stop Ireland falling into the hands of the publicans and shopkeepers, and she has fallen into their hands. I don't understand what you mean. The Irish Labour Party that Connolly helped found continued to expand on the equality of agenda of the proclamation, outlining who should own a free Ireland. Kick you, can you give us an example? Gladly. Mm-hmm. You recall that the proclamation largely written by Pierce, indicated some inkling of what they intended for the new republic. For instance, cherishing all the children of the nation equally. That was a good start. Uh, Wait, wait. This is a popular misreading of the proclamation. It didn't actually mean children. Not in the literal sense. Pierce was being metaphoric. The children referred to are the Unionists and the Nationalist people who inhabit this this island. It is an assurance that that all will be treated equally in the new republic. It was Pierce's way of emulating the achievements of Tone. That's an even better explanation of equality. Anyway, the proclamation went on. We declare the right of the people of Ireland to the ownership of Ireland and to the unfettered control of Irish destinies to be sovereign and indefeasible. Great stuff. But what does that mean in practice? Okay, with all due respect, Hugh, you are just reviewing the proclamation. What is the point? My point is that the Labour Party, which stood aside to give Sinn Féin a free run in 1918, wished to have a say in drawing up a democratic programme for the new republic. Yes, uh, the Labour democratic programme was a progressive document. It was the real children's rights charter. Uh, It uh, set out, in considerable detail, a strong aspiration to human rights and social justice in revolutionary Ireland. Tom Johnson, leader of the Labour Party, drafted this democratic programme for the first thought. Tom Johnson sought to flesh out the aspirations of the proclamation. He wrote, in the language of our first president, Padraig MacFeirish, 
We are affirm that all right to private property must be subordinated to the public right and welfare. Uh, he was putting words in Pierce's mouth. Pierce didn't say that in the proclamation. Johnson was merely explaining in a Doyle programme of actions what the proclamation had inferred. The declaration went as far to en- as to endorse Connolly's dream to ensure their being developed on the most beneficial and progressive cooperative lines. And what happened to this democratic programme? Well, uh, the programme was published and approved by the first all. The programme largely outlined a socialist policy which included the public ownership of the means of production, natural resources and wealth, <laughs> state provision of education for children and care for the elderly. But cherishing all equally. Yeah, but did this work in practice, Wilmot? <laughs> it wasn't practiced. Mm. Most of the Doyle members had not read the document in advance. Several stated that it did not represent the social and economic ideals of the first Doyle. Of course not! Hugh, please. The giddy notion of owning property clouded the mind of peasants long used to owning nothing. Mm. Property would be more important than national freedom. All the institutions of the new state would be informed by this one reality. You've reminded me, Hugh. I can't recall the exact dates, but from around 1700, most Irish people had no official record. They owned no property, made no wills, and only existed in church birth records. There you are! That's the Irish. Born to promptly disappear until their death is recorded by someone. To be better not to be born than to be born Irish. Oh, dear oh. Hugh, will you please give me a break? I'm enjoying my living. And Wilma, will you stop encouraging I him? I was merely, merely trying to feed him more crap. Will oh, your please. invisible ancestors crap, Roger? Although the name Hugh, like Blaise and be, I suspect your lineage. How dare you? Now, now he's questioning my Irishness. Oh, we don't all have Macs and O's, you know. Oh, Mr. Please. Missing Mac. Please, 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 will you stop, 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 please? Oh. So, whose republic materialised? Oh, it's clear, you. That, it's you. clear that Connolly and Labour were swept aside in the excitement of growing separation. The Gombeans won, and a survey of all subsequent doyles will show that the professions of the majority are parliamentarians. Call them what you will. You keep going on about this Gombean thing. What are you talking about? Oh, well, but fill him in, please. A gumbean is a pejorative term to describe a shady businessman who is always looking to make a quick profit, Uh. often at someone else's expense or through the acceptance of bribes. Its origin uh, is the Irish word gumbean, meaning monetary interest. Oh, go on. The term came into its own during the famine uh, to describe those shopkeepers who exploited the starving by selling much-needed food and goods on credit at massive interest rates. The Gombean class are all those who still follow such practices. There, that's a Gombean, Roger. Seen any of them lately? Are you you saying that everybody in Ireland who is enterprising is a Gombean? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) I know that many only adopt this market approach as it is the dominant one. Nevertheless, they do it for monetary interest. Exactly. They have no alternative. But they have... Connolly managed a cooperative shop on the quays in Dublin to show by example how we, we could resist the Gombeanism already evident in his day. 
we could have supply of goods and services, but as a social response. That's a stupid idea. Roger. Everybody immersed in the current model may think so. Oh, wait. Uh, Tom Clark had a shop. Was he a gone I'm talking about motivation. Of course we need economic activity. And Connolly showed an alternative way. Some people, you know, enjoy running a shop. It's called serving the people. They enjoy making a sale and and um, and reordering stock and, uh, and and doing the books. Making a bank lodgement. Well, yeah, of course, the shop wouldn't continue. He's without. only teasing you, Roger. <laughs> you little bollock. <laughs> please, please, you, Roger. You really I'm think sorry, that Roger. you know us, don't you? You 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 do, don't you? You you think you know Ireland? Well, what went wrong in your opinion with the new republic? Everything. For the first two decades of the 20th century, the process of establishing a republic accelerated, then shuddered to a halt. Why did it halt? It halted because the new middle class got their hands on power. The, 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 the Irish finally assumed power. A section of the Irish. Rubbish. And what worried the Catholic middle class assuming power was the explicit link by Pierce to Wolf Tone and the French revolutionaries. All godless delinquents. Similarly, the core Republican principle of equality did not sit well with the merchant class. That would have to go. Come on, the, the first all had to create something. Indeed they did. Now the Irish live in an economy. <laughs> Gone being heaven. Ah, oh, Hugh, that's a bit harsh now, surely. The social revolution imagined by oh, Tone gosh. Davis, Pearson, Connolly was considered <laughs> entirely Pearson. irrelevant to the needs of the new ruling class. Are you saying that the Republic is a failed entity? Oh, it works all right. But for who? Jeez. 1919, what a year. The dispossessed came into their own. The peasant into Parliament. The church into education, the aristocracy in in waiting into law. <laughs> there were many losers at that moment of flux. The truly lost were the remnants of Connolly's citizen army, the first workers' militia in Europe. This was not theirs and Connolly's republic. Also, losing out with the bulk of the Irish poor who had no stake in this commercially focused place. I've heard enough of this nonsense. Wait, wait, I'm not finished. I have something to say that includes you, Roger. The biggest losers of all are we, the rest of us, the inheritors of what might have been and is not. Well, how come you're the only one so critical of our republic? Because I'm trying to understand what it would be like to live in an authentic republic. Now, you wrote a book, which, by the way, I never intend reading, but it asks, what is it to be Irish? Well, here we are, Mr. McCoy, warts and all. Take us or leave us. So, Hugh, who do you say is at fault? I'm not blaming, but trying to understand what went wrong. For instance, I believe that the War of Independence and then Civil War drained away any last dregs of imagination from the participants. The youthful rebels went straight to conservative middle age. So you think we have a flawed republic, is that what you're saying? Pierce wouldn't have liked these free state developments. I suspect that Connolly, had he survived, would also have ended up at war with the emerging free state. I don't think the outcome was so bad. I don't even no. recognise this republic you're describing. You, you don't see it. There's no point in blaming the ECB or 
other European agencies for the austerity mess we're still experiencing. Gambinism was taken to its self-destructive end with a Celtic tiger. Why are we trying to revive that corpse? And I suspect you have some answers to Oh, just another question. Why can't we non-Gambines assume control of this republic? We are sociable, cooperative and charitable. Where is the society that fits our nature? Okay, well, listeners, I'm sorry, but Hugh seems to have used up most of our time today and I would like to apologise for some of the use of bad language. But anyway, there we must end it. We'll see you tomorrow when we'll hear the voice of Sean McDermott. So, slow until then. Now, gentlemen, I have to say, if that goes on... You've just listened to a special programme dedicated to the life and death of Eamon Kiant. We would like to thank Signora Maxwell Hogan for allowing us to digitally enhance the original Edison recordings from the period. We'd also like to thank our own Charlotte Tannen for hosting the panel discussions. And we'd like to thank her studio guests Hugh Coy, Roger Brazenby and Wilmot Hines. Tomorrow, at the same time, we'll broadcast the voice of Sean McDermott. Until then, salon. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.